Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Um, two sections here. Grace for the faithful and a grace-filled farewell. So grace for the, the faithful. So we've, we've moved from um, grace aimed at and instruction aimed at pastors, leaders. Then we've gone to the, the people, to the congregation. And now we're going to Christians set in society and kind of toward outsiders, not exclusively, but it's got a little bit of that bent, I think we'll see here. So uh, we're going to start with grace with authorities. Paul's instructing Titus to help the elders and the churches think well about how they relate to authorities. Verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So Christians are to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. So obedience is an expression of submission which follows commands. This is what Christians are to, to, to do. They're to be ready for every good work. They're to be prepared, eagerly looking for opportunities to do good, good works. We shouldn't miss here, though, the, the the point of what he's saying in these two verses, Christians ought be the best citizens in the kingdom. Christians ought to be the best citizens in, in the kingdom. They're to be the ones who are to be uniquely showing honor, showing respect for the people in authority. Because we know that authority the authority of the government is a reflection of God's design. It, it honors God to respect his order of creation. And, and it also practically paves the way for opportunities for, for good deed doing. So just listen to this prayer that, um, or this, this exhortation to prayer in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Timothy is similar ministry to, to Titus, except in Ephesus. 1 Timothy 2.1, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Interesting. Christians are to pray for the governing authorities over them. Christians are to show honor and respect for the governing authorities over them. Um, and part of the reason that we pray that way and live that way is because it paves the way for peaceful, obedient living. There's a unique way that not being a bunch of jerks opens the door for opportunities to serve and bless that the government might even want Christians to come in and do good things. Let me give you an example. One example would be, um, there's a lot of things the Southern Baptist Convention does not do well. One thing they do do well is disaster relief. So if there's a hurricane that hits somewhere or an earthquake that hits somewhere or some kind of thing like that, states love to pave the way for Southern Baptists to come in with all their stuff and to bring humanitarian aid. They actually lean on them for help because they know they're going to come in and do a great job, care for the people, clean up when they leave. So there's, there's ways that good deed doing has doors opened by right relations to, to the government. Now, I want to be really clear. Paul... Here, Peter, in the same way, the way he instructed this in, in 1 Peter, Paul elsewhere, Romans 13, this is not the only place this is taught. It's, it's a pretty, you know, uh, reoccurring theme. Jesus himself, right? Render to Caesar what Caesar's. These are bad dudes that they're commending the churches to honor and to submit to. These are not like good kings. This is not like, you know, the golden era. Caesar's a bad dude. Roman ruler emperors are bad, bad guys. These are evil people. The same emperor that Paul is telling the Christians to honor is the one who's going to take his head off. 
So he's under no illusion of like, this is not hard and weird and there's not tough questions. But he knows there's something inherent in the order that we show respect to authorities. Um, now, are there times we disobey the government? Because somebody's going to ask that. Yes, there, there, there are times you disobey the government. Um, Acts chapter 5, verse 29 gives a clear example where the governing authorities told them, told Peter and John, don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And that's where you say, respectfully, sir, I'm sorry, you're going to have to lock me up. But know that when you put me there, I'm going to be preaching there as well. Uh, I will not disobey God. So when the governing authorities demand that you disobey God, then you disobey them. Or if they try to forbid you from doing something that God commands or they command you to do something that God forbids, those, those are the times that yes. But I just want to be, please, 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 be really slow to play that persecution card. Like, just stop it. Like, there's so many Christians who whine a lot. In America, we are just not suffering. The churches are not suffering persecution in the way that I, I, there, yes, the culture's changed. Yes, there's some, there's, you, know, you might lose your tax-exempt status. Like, yes, but like that's, like this is not Saudi Arabia. And I think you want to be really slow to be whiny. There's a lot of whiny Christians. I'm not saying there aren't some things that are hard, but let me just give you an example, and this will probably make some of you mad, and it's fine. Um, it's late, and I, when it gets later, I start saying things, so Lord help me. Um, <laughs> The government telling you to wear a mask is not persecution. I'm just telling you that it's not persecution. Now, you can have all kinds of convictions. I just want to be clear. If they're telling people at Bojangles to wear a mask and they're telling a Baptist church to do the same thing, that's not persecution. Now, there may be other things that, that begin to move that way. Um, like if they said, you know, you're a Christian church, you may not meet. Well, I'm sorry. We're going to you're not even going to let us get creative about it. And like, you know, you try and flex and this and that. So yes, there's times to think about it. But I just want to be careful. I want us to, I want to encourage us to, to be careful about the way we pull those, those cards. Our general posture, though, is to be submissive to authorities. Also notice there the first two words, remind them. Much of ministry, whether you're a pastor or not a pastor, is reminding one another of things we already know. And why do you have to remind one another? Well, because we're prone to forget. That's why. So remind one another. Well, verse 2, um, to speak evil of no one, to slander, to speak against someone, to harm their reputations. It's very interesting here. Um, the Greek word here for slander or speak evil of someone, anybody know what the Greek word is? Blasphema. Now, what word comes to mind? Blasphemy. So to blasphemy is to speak evil words about God. Slander is blasphema. It's the same thing because you're speaking lies against who? An image bearer. The first time I saw that, that was very sobering. When you think about how careful you should be with the way you talk about a fellow image bearer, right? Because they are image bearers of God. And he's, he's the same word there is in play. So speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. So we are to pursue being peaceable, not contentious and fighting. To be gentle, so meek, kind, tender uh, toward others in the world. That's our, that's our posture. To show perfect courtesy and attitude of kindness. Toward all people. Now, it's very interesting here. In the Greek, the word all, it means all. That's what it means. It means everybody. There's no footnote here about people who are, uh, you know, only show courtesy to people who deserve it or who are easy to show it towards. Like, there's none of that. All just means all. That means the, the people you like and the people you don't like. That means that the attitude of a Christian is to be submissive and obedient regardless of who's in the White House. There's a position of authority that's there. 
Whether you like the guy who's in now or the guy who's in there before or the guy who's in there before or the guy who's in there before. Like that's, that's not how the Christian determines whether or not they obey. The way they determine whether or not they're going to show honor. I respectfully disagree, Mr. President. It's a fine thing to say. But that's honorable. It's an honoring way to do it because you recognize the position is, is established by, by God. So all of this posture of grace toward authorities, I think in general, and toward unbelieving world, I think it's summed up in this basic exhortation. Make sure that the only offense in your Christianity is the offense of the gospel. Not your carelessness with your words, not your corrupted or calloused speech. Just remember there's a, there's a wrong way to be right. And I think in our day, we've seen more contentious Christians. I, mean, they're, I guess they've always been, but maybe it's just because it's online. It just feels people are much meaner and harsher and more abrasive. And I just want to say, Christians, please, let us be gentle and lowly, meek and mild, which are everything that's emulated or commanded here, which emulates Jesus. We're to be like Christ. May the Lord give us grace in that. Now, what can fuel that kind of living? What a sweet way to end the book. The first word in verse 3 is what? For. He's going to explain why we treat others in this way. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So notice in verse 3, we were enslaved. Our lives before we knew Christ were characterized by the very things that we might be tempted to despise in others. How many of y'all remember your non-Christian days? Okay, like I remember mine, I was a bad dude. And the things, it's amazing, the things that I find most irritable in other people now are the very things that I used to be about. We were once foolish. We were without understanding of God's word in God's world, right? We were disobedient, characterized, characterized by rejecting God's rule over us. We were led astray. It means to be caused to, to wander off the path. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were owned by our body's cravings, our mind's impulses, our lusts, our greed. That's what owned us. Passing days in malice, hostility, strong dislike of others, and envy, a jealousy that resents others for things they have or, or opportunities that they're, they're, they're afforded. Hated by others and hating one another. Just surrounded by, by hatred, anger. I was just thinking of a guy today where I was out walking with Carrie. We were chalking through the neighborhood and pushing the baby, and there was a guy who was just so mad, just yelling, just angry. It wasn't like, a, I don't think he was like, I think he was just, he was just mad. And it was just so strange. And he started yelling at us, and it was, it was a weird situation. But I just remember just feeling so sad for him. Like, what is it like to just be mad, just angry, hating? There's this dark pit here of, of sinful existence just heading toward hell. But, verse 4, the sweetest intervention imaginable, right? We who were consumed by our sin were sought by God, and he gave us mercy. But, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God of God our Savior appeared, 
He saved us. This description of, of God's character here echoes the Old Testament, that the hesed, the, the, the loyal love of God that shows itself in an unswerving faithfulness to his character and his promises and his goodness to his, his people. It appeared. How? Well, through Christ and now through the gospel. He saved us. Verse 5. Why? Well, not because of our works done in righteousness. So God's motivation for our salvation is not what we have done. Rather, it's just the opposite. Because if God had rewarded our righteousness, we'd be doomed because of the long list of unrighteous things and all of the, even the righteous things we did with wrong motives. Like, it all would have been a testimony against us. Nobody goes to heaven for being a good person. There's only one person in heaven who's a good person. His name is Jesus. It's his righteousness that is, is our hope. But according to his own mercy, it says, God's mercy is what motivated his movement toward us. Mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. We do deserve judgment and wrath, but rather he gives us mercy, love, care, forgiveness. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit regenerates us. That gives us new life in Christ unites us with Jesus, and the life of Jesus becomes our life. We're, we're regenerated and then renewed. So there's new life in Christ, and then there's the new life of Christ. Regeneration, renewal. New life and changing us. This, by the way, quick aside, is what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 3 when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Some people wrongly think that he's saying you have to be baptized in order to be saved. That water there has nothing to do with baptism. It's actually a promise from Ezekiel chapter 36, where he says, 36:25, the promise of the new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's regeneration. You were dead. He's going to bring you to life. How? Give you a new heart. We're, we're dirty in sin. What's he going to do? He's going to renew you. He's going to wash you with the Holy Spirit. You're changed. You're cleansed. God brings fulfillment of this new covenant promise by cleansing us by the work of the Spirit. So you can see how even here Paul is drawing upon the teaching of Jesus, which was, you know, fulfilling Old Testament truths. Verse 6, who poured out on us richly, the Holy Spirit, who poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So the, the, the mercy of God was poured out richly. What an image, right? Poured out richly. It's this abundant waterfall of mercy that falls from heaven. Have you ever seen just a giant waterfall? That's the picture here. It's, it's poured out on us like a waterfall, Niagara Falls of mercy, and we benefit that. It's like this, this, this treasure chest is, is, is open, this, 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 tre this house of, of treasure is opened up, endless, bottomless treasure, and he says, come in and enjoy. That's how much mercy is there for you. Mercy poured out richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This, I'm not sure if you caught it or not, but the, the Trinitarian salvation is in view here. God the Father saved us by mercy, poured out through Jesus the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit's regeneration and renewal. Listen, y'all, God loves to save sinners, to take people who used to hate and be hated and transform them and give them a new heart so they now love and are loved. I wish I could introduce you to a guy named Tony Gonzalez, not the former tight end for the Chiefs, but a very different Tony Gonzalez uh, who lived in Graham, Texas. So when I was pastoring in Graham, Texas, we first met in this, um, this storefront and um, a guy, uh, a guy came in, uh, a Hispanic gentleman, and his his wife came in. They sat in the back row, and um, 
I preached and afterwards I introduced myself and he didn't, he didn't really say anything to me. He just kind of looked at me. And I said, well, it was good to have you. Come back anytime. Um, the next Sunday, came back again. And he when, he, when I preached, he just stared at me. Just, you could tell, like, he was, it looked, just looked mad. And he came back and he came back and he came back. And um, uh, he just, he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't interact much. Um, and at first I thought maybe, maybe just, you know, his English was, was not, not where it needed to be yet to be able to have those conversations, and certainly my Spanish wasn't. And, but I quickly learned that's not what the problem was. Um, Tony kept coming back, and eventually something changed in him. I remember the first Sunday he sat in the, sat in the back row with a smile. I thought, oh, something happened. And I thought, well, my preaching must be really good today. <laughs> uh, well, that's not what had happened. Um, later on that week, I was at the house, and uh, Tony drove up in his truck. And you got to understand, Tony was, he was an angry dude. Like, he was an angry guy. Um, he pulled up, came out to, my, came out to the deck, and he said, uh, he said, Garrett, I want to tell you something. I said, okay. He said, uh, I used to hate white people. I hated white people. I hated them all. I didn't trust them. I was sick of being looked down on. I hated white people. Hated them. And I hated you. And I was like, okay. Um, and he said, I, I, I hated you. I hated coming to your church with all your white people in there. He goes, but I had to keep coming back, and I didn't know why. And then, and then I heard about Jesus, that he loved me. And he said, you know what? I don't know why, but I don't hate you anymore. He said, I love you. And he said, now, not in a pinkish way. <laughs> it's funny. I just he goes, not like that. And I was like, it's okay, man. And I was like, We're, we can just talk. He says, I love you. I was like, I love you? <laughs> it's one of those moments. He goes, he goes, can I hug you? I was like, yeah, man, hug me. And he just, he just hugged me with this big old Tony bear hug. I just, God melted his heart. He got saved. He who used to hate and be hated, like God changed him. And he became like the most tender, gentle, loving man that, that I knew. He's a godly dude. I got to baptize him, became a deacon, like lovely, lovely brother. He ended up dying. Um, he got the swine flu. Remember that thing happened? Well, he, he got that and, and he died of pneumonia complication. But Tony, I'll see him again. Because of mercy that loves to seek out people who don't love God and melt their hearts and give them new hearts and change them so that most unlikely sorts of hugs <laughs> would occur. And that's what happens in the church. And that's what God's people are to be marked by. And Tony's whole outlook on life changed. He wanted to just give everything he had. And he didn't have a lot of money, but anything he had was somebody else's. He had a truck, and he was happy to use it for anything. He was just, he became a servant because mercy had happened to him. And that's what Paul is laying out here. That's what he's laying out here. He's saying, so that being justified by his grace, we may become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God does all this work so that, yes, we might have justification, a right standing with him, and become heirs where now we receive the glorious inheritance with the hope of eternal life, which we've talked about a couple times, that this is before us. This trustworthy, this saying is trustworthy. All this gospel is just reminded us, and I want you to insist, state with confidence and certainty, on these things so that those who believed in God, like Tony, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Because those good works, they're a reflection of the kindness that God has shown us in Christ. You see, it's, it's hard to pridefully look down on the sins of others when you're looking up 
at Christ who took your sins on the cross. There's something that happens when you get grace. It changes you. There's nothing like grace to eliminate our pride and encourage pity toward other sinners. This is why those who love most, well, those who are forgiven much love much, as Jesus would say. The reason you love is because you know you've been loved so much. He says, these things are excellent. Like, amen, right? These things are excellent. They're praiseworthy and profitable for people. They're valuable. They're beneficial. All these false teachers and all their things that they're cultivating, all it does is tear people down and steal and use people rather than serve people. But this gospel life is not about that. Gospel life is fueled by gospel delight. Delight in the gospel, and it will change you. And it's glorifying to God and helpful to others. It does good to others, which is what we were very, the very thing we were created for. It's the opposite of the life of sin. A life of sin steals from others and hurts others and uses others. But when you've gotten mercy, all you want to do is bless others and serve others because that's what Christ has done for you. I think it's a great example of what we mean when we talk about being gospel-centered. You can't guilt people into obedience. Well, you can, but that's going to be terrible obedience. Gratefulness, thankfulness, that's the kind of fuel that you need for obedience. And you get that from looking at Jesus and seeing what he's done. That's where real power comes from. That helps you fight sin because you don't want to, you don't want to sin against the one who's done nothing but good to you. That's much more, that's much better motivation than like, well, you know, just do it or otherwise you're a bad Christian. They're like, oh, you scare me and shame me into stuff. Like that doesn't help anybody. It doesn't produce lasting change. And now we need to give grace to, with troublemakers. Uh, what we mean by that is they need, they need to hear the truth. So in stark contrast to the person who's been transformed by mercy, there's false teachers and their disciples, verses 9 through 11. But foolish controversies and genealogies, uh, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So again, but, verse 9, so in contrast with gospel people are these graceless problem makers. They don't, follow, they don't follow God's instruction, so we must not follow their instruction or their example. That's why he says, avoid foolish controversies, debates, disputes, genealogies. Those are lists of ancestors. Probably either to trace back your lineage because you're the super spiritual ones or you're connected to these particular people or some other groups were using it to baptize for the dead. Either way, it's wrong. Don't do it. Um, so I'm not saying you can't look up your genealogy. I'm just saying there's nothing spiritually empowering from that um, or any kind of a fuel for help. Dissensions, this is tribalism. So I think in our day, something we see again, this tribalistic rivalry between different Christian groups, which is just, it's, it's not godly. Um, for they are unprofitable and worthless. All that infighting and tearing one another down and speculation and weird religious stuff, it's unprofitable and worthless. Rather than being excellent and profitable like we saw in, in 3.8. So people's, people whose ministries and lives are marked by these qualities, they work against God. God desires to produce good in people's lives by the power of the Spirit. But they, they want strife. They just like to fight. They want to tear others down. They want to step on others so they get exalted. They want to harm others. They work against peaceful unity. And then he gives an example of how to deal with people who manifest that, those sorts of unprofitable fruits. 3.10. As for a person who stirs up division. So if you're in church long enough, you will find these sorts of people. There are people who appear very religious. Well, they are very religious, but appear very righteous initially. But they are going to be facilitating 
factions. They're going to be cultivating contention. Uh, Their aim is to find followers who will be sympathetic to their causes and their ideas. They're going to lure sheep away from shepherds. Sometimes they're knowingly do this. Sometimes they're just deceived, and they don't know that's what they're doing, but that's what they're doing. Divisive people are often driven by a desire to be in charge. They want to be seen. They want their opinions to be heard. And one of the ways that they try and do that is they will try to cultivate discontentment in people by questioning either the leadership's character or um, their decisions or their motives or their teaching. And again, be really clear, all teachers are uh, no teachers above scrutiny. So every pastor needs to be able to be evaluated and scrutinized and corrected and taught true. But these people, it doesn't matter if Jesus is the pastor. They're going to find some way to be trying to criticize and cultivate dissension. That's what these people are are about. And over the years, I've seen a a few of of these. Um, They almost always initially appear to have very impressive uh, biblical knowledge. Like they just come off as, oh, wow, these people know the Bible, right? Um, Sometimes they have very deep, sincere convictions. But over time, as you get to know them, they, they always show themselves to be discontent, grumbly, and they very hobby horse, horse-ish, okay? Um, there's sorts of things you can be divisive about, matters of theology. Um, so I've, I, was in a, I was in a church where some very, uh, I've seen both Calvinism, Calvinists and anti-Calvinists both kind of be, can, can do this, this particular uh, situation I remember was an anti-Calvinist sort of thing. It became very ugly. Um, it was incredible. These people actually hand-typed the emails in for a thousand people uh, in order to email out accusations against uh, some pastors. It was, it was pretty impressive, actually. Um, this can happen around charismatic gifts, around end-time stuff, where you can get very hobby horseish again. Um, so it can also be matters of cultural engagement. Um, so it could be against, uh, you know, about issues of drinking or dancing. Uh, there was somebody in this church who did the Harry Potter thing, that like Harry Potter's of the devil, and any, you know, parents who allow their kids to watch Harry Potter or do Pokemon, like that's satanic and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And Disney was in that too, and it was, it was a very interesting situation. So there was that. Uh, people can get this way, um, can be divisive around issues of, of abortion, racial injustice, political parties and candidates. There can be... Think all of those things are in play. Whatever it is, it requires action. He says, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. So this is following in line with Jesus' instruction in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, Matthew 18 appears to have three steps, so you might wonder how does that work. Well, two of the you could it could be that two of those steps are private, and then one goes public to the church. It's probably what's in mind here. Um, but the idea is that if, if a person will not stop their divisiveness, they must be removed because divisive people will never be satisfied. They just, they will never be satisfied. Um, verse 11, knowing that such a person is warped, corrupted, perverted, twisted is the word, and sinful, he is self-condemned, means he stands in his own guilt. I will say that church discipline for divisiveness is one of the trickiest types of discipline. It's hard to do. Um, if, if it is going to happen, if, you, if it needs to happen in a church, uh, number one, the, the charges need to be really clear. Here's what the person's doing. Here's how it's affecting others. Secondly, the leaders need to be ready to defend their own character because it will most certainly be accompanied by that person retaliating with all the examples of the ways that the pastors are abusive and manipulative and oppressive and all that kind of stuff. So you just got to be ready for that. And you just got to pray a lot for the Lord to protect unity in the church and that none of the sheep will get pulled off by the wolf because sometimes that can happen. Um, so you just got to pray. Um, Satan loves divisive people, though. He loves to steal, kill, and destroy. 
And then the conclusion, a grace-filled farewell, verse 12 through 15. Uh, when I send Artemis or Tychius to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So the closing of the letter gives greetings and guidance here. First, uh, verses 12 through 13, we see these grace for gospel partners. So Paul evidently spend a, uh, intended to spend the winter in Nicopolis, which was uh, on the coast of Greece. And he wanted Titus to join him there, either for ministry purposes or just refreshment, whatever it may be. But Titus was supposed to wait in Crete until one of these two brothers showed up. So either Artemis, which we don't know anything else about, or Tychius, who was a faithful uh, companion of Paul. We see him in Acts and Ephesians and Colossians. Um, actually, really interesting, Onesimus, who we'll meet tomorrow morning, was one of the traveling buddies with, uh, with Tychius here. So they, they, were, they were gospel buddies um, and did, did ministry together. Uh, Titus was also to care for Zenus the lawyer. Don't know anything about him, but again, there's a Christian lawyer, so praise the Lord. Um, and Apollos. Um, <laughs> it happens, Christina. I know. Uh, and Apollos, who <laughs> um, was a well-known brother, brother. He would have been kind of a celebrity pastor. I mean, I, the poor, people in Corinth loved, loved him. They wanted Apollos because he was such a, a powerful orator. Um, but it's important to notice here that Titus was supposed to ensure that they lacked nothing so that they could carry on their ministry. We don't know if they were coming to Crete and working there or passing through. Um, one of the themes you see in the early church is that the church felt responsibility to encourage the work of traveling mis uh, missionaries and ministers. Um, this is important for a reason, but, but listen to this from 3 John. Um, uh, ben Robin just preached a wonderful sermon on this. Uh, beloved, it's, it's a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, talking about traveling missionaries who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, meaning pray for them, encourage them, and give them money. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that they may be fellow workers for the truth. Um, I think it's important just to notice here, the spirit of the early church was never competitive like tribalism. They're always seeking to build one another up and sacrificing what they have to help fuel gospel ministry elsewhere. That others-mindedness is not just others individuals, but others churches, and that should, that should mark us as well. Well, verse 14, grace for good works. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Again, this is the sixth time. Sixth time in three chapters. Remember again, the Cretans were lazy and selfish, uh, which is probably why drunkenness comes up a couple times throughout the book. It's just because lazy people tend to just drink and sit around and, you know, listen to Jimmy Buffett or whatever you do. I don't know. Um, like, just, just be lazy, I guess. Um, so they are supposed to be opposite of that, right? Committed to and have a posture of readiness for good works. Um, I, I do think it's important to notice there. Did you catch this? Verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. It must be learned. Good works are not always just instinctive. That's why we do a session like this and sit together for nearly three hours uh, to talk through these chapters because hearing it all at once, it does something. You're gonna leave here thinking, grace for good works, grace for good works, and whatever else you're gonna remember from this. But I think you'll remember that we're supposed to be eager for good works, that grace fuels that. Um, it needs to be learned. So encourage one another, as long as it's called today, provoking one another to good, to good works, as Hebrews would say. So as to help cases of urgent need. This is interesting. Paul highlights cases where there are immediate, necessary action required. Likely in view, widows, orphans, persecuted. Um, actually, when... Thank you for clarifying what your question was earlier about how we can help um, single mothers. I misunderstood your question. Thank you for coming up and talking to me about it. I think, yes, this would be an example of financially 
Congregations who have single moms should be very thoughtful of the way that they might be able to help financially. Um, because to be able to, to care for the home and to be able to have a job at the same time, you can't be omnipresent. And so it's going to require the church with both helping with other people and also financially in all the ways that you can. So this would be an example of a, a case of maybe urgent need there. But I think a, a question you might even want to think about as we prepare to, to go out is, are you available and ready to do good works? Like, could, you, could somebody just call and say, hey, listen, there's a situation, could you help? And are you the sort of person who's able, which this, by the way, is really convicting for me. I'm very busy in ways that I think sometimes stifles my ability to be ready for good works. I was, I was super convicted by that. So pray for me to think to try to, how can I correct that and, and be more ready for whenever the Lord might just say, hey, go do this. Really encouraging example of this. This week. One of our pastors who was standing next to me got a call or a text from um, a sister in the church who had just gotten home and her door to the house was, un- was open and her husband was, was off somewhere, was unable to come and she was, you know, rightfully just nervous and didn't, was just wondering, what should I do? Couldn't get a hold of her husband. Um, and so... We looked where she lived and looked where another member who lived close to that. I called that brother, David Uridia, and said, hey, what are you doing? He said, I'm in the grocery store. I was like, here's the deal. Uh, so there's a sister who lives pretty close to you, and uh, her door was open when she got home. He's like, hey, man, no problem. I'm on it. I was like, well, I think he had one of the kids with him. Like, we'll just pile in. We'll go over. We'll make sure everything's okay. Like, he was ready for good work. Somebody was in need, and he's like, I'll do that. I'll step in. This is my sister. Of course I'm going to go help. That's the sort of gospel life that just ought to be normal for the, for the Christian church. It emulates Christ, right? And to not be unfruitful. So fruitfulness is the life of Christ produced through obedience. John 15, 8, the Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. 15, 11, this fruitfulness is spoken, uh, commands to, do, to produce good fruit through obedience so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. So God is glorified and our joy is fulfilled through good works and obedience. Verse 15. All who are with me send greetings to you. Grace to those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Not sure who all is with him, but Paul's always rolling deep and he's got the church there who's with him. And they're always giving holy hellos to one another and shouting out, and this is what they're doing. He's sending warm greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Again, all, would have excluded the false teachers, so he's not saying hello to them, but would to all the faithful ones. Grace be to you all. The last thing to notice in this is grace be with you all. You can't see this in our English translations, but in the original language, that you is plural. Now, why do you think that might be significant, that the you is plural? What does that imply is probably happening or should be happening, is expecting to happen? This book is to be read for the churches. It's not just Titus, but it's to be read to all the churches, like a setting like this, so that people can hear, receive, believe, obey, apply, and pass it on to others, which is the reason that we've done the book of Titus. It's so that you can hear it, receive it, believe it, Seek to obey it, strengthen your discipling of one another, and be active and ready for good works because the grace of God has appeared and will appear again. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll take any questions, and then we'll be done. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this book and, yeah, the the blessing that it is. We pray that you would make us a people who are holy and humble and happy in Christ, who are moved deeply by the grace of God your grace given to us by the working of the Holy Spirit through the Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord, help us. Give us grace. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. All right. If you need to go, feel free. But if you have questions, anybody have any questions on chapter 3 or anything in the book that we need to go over before we go home? Anybody, anything. I'd love a question. And another one. Yep. Yep. Hey. Oh. 
Hi, my name is Lois. Um, just a question. In the beginning of chapter three, you were saying how um, in regards to authority, Christians should be, um, I guess, sort of the best citizens of the state. And that includes being, sub uh, you know, being submissive to um, the authority that God um, placed above us. But um, what about civil disobedience? Does that kind of lie closer to being a good citizen, which is a peaceful observance of the law, but still making a statement? Or does that also um, undermine kind of um, not being submissive to authority? Yeah, so in regards to civil disobedience, I would have to say it would depend on the case. It's going to be a case-by-case -case basis. Like, so, so in what instance? So I think when we think about this, in the way it applies to us in America, I think, first of all, we have a, a privilege of electing our own leaders. So we actually get to pick who the authorities are that are over us, which I think should, yeah, move us to be thoughtful stewards of the freedoms we have and the right, and the, the right we have to, to vote and to even think about how, how we use that. Um, I think we also, um, in God's kindness, live in a country where there's freedom to protest. So if there is something that you think is unjust, um, it is right and good to a peaceful protest. Christians should not be marked, however, by, um, yeah, all sorts of destructive things that can happen during protests or rallies or insurrections or whatever else. Like, Christians should not be marked by those sorts of things. Um, but there are ways to peacefully protest and to declare our dislike for things. In regards to civil disobedience, I think it, Christians should be slow to that. It should be a very well thought out with a lot of wise counsel. And I think you'd have to make a pretty good case for it. So if there's a particular instance that you're thinking of, I'd be happy to do my best to comment on. Um, or if it's just a general question, that would be my general answer. General question? Yeah. Okay, you weren't plotting something. Okay. <laughs> I just, you know, you never know. <laughs> so, all right, good. Praise God. Well, let me know if you are, and we can help you think through it. So I'll let uh, you know. Yeah, thanks. But do pay your taxes. So there you go. <laughs> Going back to chapter one, since you opened it up the whole book, um, what when he talks about the qualifications of the elders and hospitality, what would be the context of what he's talking about? What does that mean for Titus and the people of Crete? What does that look like then? Is that the same definition of how we should understand it to mean it now, or is that changed depending on the culture we're living in? I think it's always going to generally mean the same thing, that there's open lives, and open homes, open lives, so that you can see Jesus. And again, I think that, I don't know that culture, some cultures, hospitality is going to be more of a normal way of life anyway. I mean, you know, you know, Christians in New England, not so much. You know, it's, it's a, you have to really teach that sort of thing. Um, but I think some cultures are going to be just more hospitable generally. It's just going to be part of, of what you do. But I think there's a unique way that, that Christians want to be open and vulnerable and, and certainly not greedy and, and they want to be generous. So it may be easier, more natural for some Christians than others, but yeah. yeah so I, I think in this culture you want to, Try to make sure that your, your time, energy, resources are, are available as best as you can. And that may change from season to season depending on what's going on in the family. But. Did you have a question? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, two parts. First, to, just to point out, there is in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, um, a section in there about um, God hates those that stir up discord among believers. So I just thought I would add that on to what you had mentioned about the, about the person. Mm -hmm. um, and then wanted to follow on to what was said over there just a minute ago, is that on civil disobedience, mm -hmm. it does seem in the last couple of years or so, at least in more of my lifetime, that there is more of a marginalization, especially of Christianity or people that do want to stand up for right and not just necessarily people of Protestants, but also uh, the Catholic Church or even some of the others, where we're going to have to be praying about what's going on because, like, in the last 
couple of weeks or so, they were talking of um, there have been instances of people being arrested just because they stood at a um, an abortion clinic and was not um, intruding on anybody, but yet they're being brought in. And there was one person that was 87 year old Holocaust survivor that was there. So I just wanted to point that out because I'm a a little bit cautious when we say, well, we don't have to worry about persecution because I think we do. Thank you for that. And, you know, I don't know all the ins and outs of each of those cases. Uh, What I would say, though, is that I think generally Christians in America can can sometimes uh, too much intermingle their American freedoms and liberties and the expectations that come with that with kind of what they'd expect in regards to freedoms as a Christian. And I just, I think we just need to be, I just want to be careful about that. Just the more international Christians I speak with who are, live in persecuted countries, you know, um, you know, to be, able to, to be able to protest against a leader without losing your head, they say, that's freedom. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, so I think there's, I hear what you're saying. And I do think the culture is changing and I do think it will be, Become increasingly difficult for Christians to uh, to, to to live uh, to, to to live out the, the the gospel implications for sure. So I don't want to don't want to minimize that. But I will say that not you know not not every you know, uh, g- group in American history has always had freedoms. So it's it's been yeah, it's quite a mixed bag in in our country's history in regards to people having freedom to to worship as they yeah as they would desire, but. May the Lord give us grace, and I think what will help us in the midst of all of that is to keep our eyes on the grace that has appeared and will appear again. Thank you all for coming. I pray the Lord will give grace. Let me pray for us once more, and then we'll head home. Lord, thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us to be eager for good works. Oh, Lord, open doors for that. Arrange divine appointments. We thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen.